Hey there, yellow chicken nuggets. It's me, Carl. Welcome to camp, or retreat, or whatever you call it. I just have a couple rules to go over with you guys. Well, just one rule. Rule number one, have fun, and that's it. Just having fun at camp. There are no rules. Well, I mean, just the one rule, having fun. Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to What's the Wi-Fi Password? The message you're about to listen to is from our 2020 high school winter camp at Mount Hermon. This was an awesome weekend full of shenanigans, teachings, and community with other churches across California. Hope you enjoyed. Hey, my name's Matt. I'm, uh, I'm stoked to be here. And um, I know some of you, <clears throat> some of you I don't know, and um, some of you um, I hope to get to know, but uh, we get to spend the next three hours together uh, teaching the Bible. So, right, Josh? Oh, no, it wasn't three. Sorry, it was closer to 45 minutes, but um, we'll see what happens. I mean, the Lord can do anything, but uh, I am really, really delighted to be here um, I love hanging out with high school students. Um, I was a youth pastor for about 11 years, and now I get to be um, a pastor at a church uh, in Monterey called Calvary Monterey. Oh, okay. Insert cheer there. Good job, Calvary Monterey. And uh, man, I I just love being able to talk about Jesus, and I love being able to... um, talk about the life that he wants to offer to each one of you. So I don't know where you came from. Um, well, I know where some of you came from, cities here in California, but uh, I don't know where you're at spiritually, but I have been praying for you um, for probably, well, actually quite a while since I knew that I was going to be teaching this, uh, this session. And I really believe that the Lord has something to say to at least one of you. And he's giving me a name, and it starts with it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But I do believe the Lord wants to speak. And so I want to just kind of dive in. I want to get into it, and I want to just go for our time together. Are you guys cool with that? Great. Okay, John chapter 14. Go ahead and turn there. The band already stole my passage. So um, they sang a song that is actually pulled directly from um, this verse that we're going to be looking at. And... Um, So I just loved being able to sing that. It's almost like we planned that or something, um, that I would be teaching a song or a song. (laughs) It was a verse before it was a song, just so you guys know. But stoked that we get to do this. So I'm reading from the ESV. It's the extra spiritual version, but you could have whatever version you want. It's totally fine. Um, So let's read it. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, we have already been able to worship you in singing and with our song. But Lord, we want to worship you now with our hearts and our minds. So Lord, I ask that you would do something that only you can do in a time like this that you can rearrange things in our hearts. You could shape and form us to be more like your son, Jesus, for your glory and your praise. And I just pray that you would accomplish that tonight. Lord, I pray that you would break 
chains that may be holding some back, that you would, Lord, bring freedom where there's been shame and that you would bring rest where there has been exhaustion. So Jesus, we ask you to do something. We praise you. We thank you for who you are and that, Lord, you are more than willing and more than able to do way more than we could ever pray or imagine. So Lord, do your best tonight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have you guys ever read something that once you were reading and you got to the end, you just felt like, oh man, I don't know if I really wanted to read that. Um, I remember years ago when California passed a law that all fast food restaurants needed to post their dietary kind of, um, you know, uh, details uh, either at their restaurant or on their menu board. And, you know, uh, I remember going to Taco Bell's drive-thru for the first time after that and feeling lots of shame for the amount of times that I found myself in the Taco Bell drive-thru and realizing now what I was eating. And it wasn't so much that, you know, uh, I wasn't aware, but I wasn't aware to the degree that 80% of their beef was real beef. Because I thought, what about the other 20%? And that's where my mind went. And I just remember feeling like, why has California done this to me and ruined my relationship with Taco Bell? Now, some of you, you may have read John 14, 6, and that verse hit you in a certain way. Because this is perhaps the most controversial statement of Jesus. There's going to be other statements that are made throughout this weekend. We call them the I am statements. These are self-declarations of Jesus. These are self-revelations. They tell us something about his character, about his heart for you, about his hope for the future. These are him revealing who he is to us. It'd be like me if I was to share about myself a little bit. I'm you know, I've been married to my wife, Bree, for 12 wonderful years. We have a six-year-old son named Cannon, an almost two-year-old son named Crew. They are the joys of our life. You know, I um, am nearly six feet tall. I can lift about 200. Why did somebody laugh over there? Okay. <laughs> I can lift nearly 250 calories and then put it into my mouth and take a bite. You know, that's the kind of person that I am. I'm revealing something to you. Jesus is revealing who he is. And this statement of Jesus is, like I said, hits us in our cultural moment in a specific way. Because this statement is so exclusive. You can't get around it. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, I am a way. I am a truth. I am a life. And if, if we're confused or we're like, okay, Jesus, that sounded pretty narrow, but I don't know if you really meant it. He kind of doubles down on the second half of the verse and he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is a very exclusive statement from Jesus, isn't it? In a culture like ours today, in a secular culture, a statement like this is often seen as intolerant. Would you agree that the culture that we find ourselves in has an issue with this statement of Jesus? Would you agree with that? Some of you would. Now, you could even say, Matt, I actually agree with my culture in, in seeing that this is one of the aspects of Jesus that is hard for me to take in. This is hard for me. I love a lot of what he says, but the fact that he positions himself away from all the other religious leaders in history, like, I don't know about that. Now, let me 
Let me just take a, a, a few moments before we dig into the actual words of Jesus, which we're going to do. I want to talk about this idea of exclusivity. Because I don't, I don't want to just breeze past it. For some of us that may have found that a stumbling block, maybe you were invited by a friend and maybe you thought, okay, I'm going to go up with a bunch of church people and we're going to have fun and you know, um, we're going to pull all these practical jokes. And then Josh gets up and like tells you no practical jokes and half of the bag you packed was practical jokes. So you're like, oh man, what am I going to wear this weekend? Um, maybe that's you. I want to speak to you for a second, or maybe if you've been raised in the church, but you've been starting to hear other things in our culture going, yeah, maybe there's more ways than just the way that I've been taught. Well, let's talk about this for a second, because Jesus' claim to be the only way to God, it was just as controversial when he said it almost 2,000 years ago than it is today, because Jesus is talking to a group of Jewish people that would have Known the statement that he has made is linking him to Jehovah God, the God of the Jews from Exodus, where God declared himself to Moses. What were the two words that he said? I am. I am, I am who I am. That is the, the name of God. That is the, the, the definition of God. And Jesus is referencing that in this statement. And so he is making a pretty controversial claim. Now, he's God, so he can make that claim. But I want us to see that this isn't a new thing for us to kind of delve into some like controversy with the person of Jesus. Like this has been going on for a while to the point where it got Jesus betrayed, uh, you know, arrested, falsely uh, accused, un unjustly tried, and then murdered on a cross, right? So this is a controversial person. Now, I think we understand that, but I think what's most difficult is we look at Christians and we say, but why are Christians so intolerant? Why are Christians so intolerant? Have you ever thought that before? I know I have. <laughs> I've thought, okay, you know, I hear that from people. I hear that from uh, media outlets. And, you know, I, we got to understand this word tolerance. Now, what does tolerance mean? Anybody have a definition for me? I want to hear from you. What is tolerance? Yeah. Resistance to judgment from others. Okay. It's good. Yeah. Being okay with things happening. Patience. That's good. I like that. Yeah. What you can handle? Is that what you said? What you can handle? Yeah. Awesome. Anybody else? Like, I can only tolerate or handle this much before I go berserk. That's good. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, like, I like your guys' definitions. This is good. Yeah. Is that TC Abby? Yes. Good to see you. <laughs> All right. Just calling you out. Acceptance. Acceptance. Yeah, I like that. So... Tolerance has been defined as respect and kindness and acceptance towards people that you may disagree with, right? And you disagree with them on their beliefs and their practices. This has kind of been the classical definition of tolerance. Like 
You can't really tolerate someone or something that isn't pushing against or somehow disagreeing with what you're doing, right? Does that make sense? So tolerance in, it, in its own definition kind of assumes that there's some sort of disagreement. Now, we have to admit as Christians, and I'll admit it, that we have not always treated with respect those we disagree with. There are Christians in the public square that are not doing a very good job of respecting those that they disagree with. I remember when I was young, I grew up in the church and I had a passion for Jesus. And, you know, I um, wanted to tell people about Jesus. And so I, I got into evangelism and passing out tracts and talking to people, having cold conversations and those kind of things. And I remember going to a Bible bookstore and I was young, you know, I was probably 11, maybe 12 years old. And it was around the time where CDs were like really kind of on the rise cassette tapes, which were these kind of plastic um, rectangular devices that you would place in this Walkman thing. You can ask Papa Google about it. It's, it's this old technology that's totally passe. But I remember looking at some of the Christian music and uh, there was this one band poster that I was staring at. And I remember it was the band PFR. It was when acronyms were really cool and anything that was cool in, in the world was like extra cool in the Christian world, right? So every Christian band was doing an acronym. So PFR, I saw this poster. I remember looking at it, the guys just had, you know, kind of long hair. They dressed kind of cool. One of the guys had an earring and uh, super hip, right? Just like, wow. And I remember looking at this and I was just kind of staring at it. And this guy came up to me and he was kind of a grown man. And he, he looks at me and he looks at the poster and he points to the guy with the earring and he says, hmm, it's a shame that guy's going to hell. And I can tell you, like, I never wanted to have an earring so bad in that moment than I did right there. There was, that's the rebellious side of me. I wish I could have just like turned and been like, I guess I am too, you know, or something weird like that. But I didn't have that. Um, but uh, so I got in, I'm like, I got into this debate and I just said, oh, why do you, why do you think that? Then he started talking about some of the Old Testament laws that were for Israel, and he was wanting to apply those to today. And he kind of forgot about Jesus coming and saying, hey, I fulfilled the law. You know, not a very small thing to forget or to leapfrog over. And so I went back and forth with him a little bit, and I was pulling out scripture, and I was pulling out the big guns, and I was just like, what about this? What about that? And we were going toe-to-toe. And... Uh, you know, I thought, I, another thought was like, I wish I just had like a needle and a ring. Like I'd pierce his ear right now and be like, dude, what's going to happen now? You know, are you going to go up in flames? You know, that again, I was young and that was the rebellious part of me. But we got to the point where uh, it was fruitless and it was just going nowhere. And so I did what any spiritual Christian would do when they've reached the point of an argument that's just going nowhere. I just said, hey man, I'm going to pray for you. And I just walked away. Now that's an example of um, not having a very respectful dialogue with someone that you disagree with, right? And maybe you've had the same encounter. But isn't it true that we tolerate people that we disagree with every single day? How many of you guys, you're, you're into football? Wow, are you kidding me? <laughs> Man. Don't use this illustration ever again. Okay, one and a half of you apparently are into football. Um, 
How many of you like music? No, I'm just kidding. Um, have you heard of the internet? Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, I kind of come from the conviction that baseball is uh, the best sport. But I also know that there are people that believe that football's the best sport. And they can be wrong and they can, you know, have that and all that kind of a thing. But we tolerate each other, right? I'm not, I'm not picketing in front of any Niners games. You know, I, I'm letting them do their thing. I respect I can even watch a good football game. I actually enjoy football, but I just enjoy baseball much more. Music. A lot of you guys have different musical tastes. You, you, you tolerate people of different music tastes, right? And in genres, you guys can get along, um, I hope. Um, you know, we share... We share the road on highways with, with hybrids and Hummers, right? That's kind of the thing. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think we've ever seen a Prius, you know, just uh, drive off the road because they saw a Hummer coming. Like, I, I, how dare you? Your ginormous carbon footprint, you know, you're, I, I'm not driving on the same road as you. We tolerate people we disagree with every day. Now we can look and say, well, Matt, that's like, that's like trivial matters. You know, you're talking about sports, you're talking about music, but what about matters of belief in God and how we practice what we believe? Well, here's what our culture will say. Christians should stop being so intolerant, claiming that they have the corner on truth, because after all, what's true for one person may not be true for another. So stop forcing your truth on other people. Remember the first time I heard someone pose that argument, I feel like it just took the wind out of my sails. I felt like Kip in Napoleon Dynamite. The, the leg was swept out right from under me. So what do we say to that? What do, that kind of makes us feel like, okay, well then I'm gonna just worship. I'm gonna just do my thing. I'm just gonna be a Christian in my own little sphere and I'm not gonna try to convince anyone. I'm not gonna try to tell anyone and I'm gonna just do that thing. Well, first, you need to see that the claim that what may be true for one person may not be true for another Guys, that is a truth statement, isn't it? It's a statement of how things work. So by its own definition, I don't need to accept that statement as truth for me. Do you get that? So for someone to say, hey, what's true for you may not be true for me. So then can I turn around and say, well, then that's not a true belief for me. So let's disagree and let's get along. You see, it seems so inclusive but it actually is very narrow unless you agree with it. Here's an example of a dialogue you could have with somebody that you disagree with on certain matters. You know, Pastor Josh could come to me and say, Matt, you know, we want to um, do this really incredible thing for camp and uh, it's gonna cost us, you know, about 30 grand, um, but it's gonna be amazing, it's gonna be awesome. Um, you know, we're going to bring in uh, Jeremy Camp, and, uh, you know, the youth are really loving him these days, and he's really hip, and he's awesome, so can we bring him in? And I would say, hey, Josh, I don't think that that's going to be uh, in our budget. I don't think that's really going to work, so can we think of something else? And then Josh could say, well, you shouldn't force your truth on me, man. <laughs> Which I'd say, okay, well, why not? And he could say, well, because I don't believe in you forcing your truth on other people which I would say, okay, that's what you believe. And Josh would say, yes, that's what I believe. He's a man of conviction. He would hold to his guns. And so I'd say, so you think you're right and I'm wrong? And he'd say, yes, I do. 
And I can say, well, aren't you trying to force your truth on me right now then? This, these are the kind of conversations me and Josh have at church. I mean, <laughs> this is just a regular Sunday afternoon, you know, I'm drinking coffee. Here's my point, and here's why I spend so much time on it. Everyone makes claims. Everyone makes truth claims. And here's the deal, guys. Everyone is exclusive. Everyone is exclusive. Even the person that says nobody has the truth is making an exclusive statement about reality that not everybody holds. Therefore, it's exclusive. So that doesn't answer the question of why are Christians so intolerant? Because there are Christians in their actions and in their practices, they come off very um, rude and very unchristlike, very unloving to the lost and dying world. But we need to go back to our definition of tolerance. Listen to this. If the classical definition of tolerance is meant that you are respectful and kind and accepting of people, even though you may disagree with their beliefs and practices, notice that in that definition, you can't tolerate someone unless you disagree with them. But here's our problem today is we have lost the ability to disagree agreeably. We've lost the ability to disagree with each other. We are in the age of outrage. We type in all caps. We love short bursts. We just want to say it and that's it. And I don't care about nuance. I don't care about your perspective. I just want to cram my perspective down your throat. That's the culture that we live in. Healthy dialogue, nuance, debate have been lost in our cultural climate. Therefore, true tolerance has been lost as well. Because in our culture today, to disagree with someone, whether it's about their beliefs or actions, this will lead to you be called intolerant or even bigoted. Here's actually a definition for tolerance from the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. Say that five times fast. The act of recognizing and accepting the equal validity and value of all views, beliefs, and actions. Did you, did you see the shift in that definition? That was not a definition that talks about accepting a person. That just talks about accepting their beliefs. You see, what we have shifted from is respect and acceptance of an individual, whether we agree with them or not. And we shifted to saying, I just have to accept your beliefs, but I don't have to accept you. That's actually called indifference. And that's not the, that's actually the opposite of love. Do you realize that? So what the culture is saying is more loving, this acceptance, this all embracing, which actually logically doesn't even make sense, is, is more indifference than it is love. Because everyone is exclusive. The new tolerance definition doesn't even stand up to its own test. If all views and beliefs are equally valid and should be accepted, then what about my belief that all beliefs are not equally valid? Can you accept that one? No, you can't. That's kind of the one you can't accept. <laughs> Didn't you see the asterisk that led down to the bottom page? And, you know, we got some notes on that one. So we cannot accept that view, but we can accept all the others. Maybe. Because embedded in this new tolerance is a truth statement about what is right and wrong. Here's my point again. The new tolerance expects everyone to agree with its assessment of beliefs, that all beliefs are equally valid. And guys, that's not very tolerant. Everyone is exclusive and everyone makes truth claims. Here's 
the $24 question. I don't know why I said 24. <laughs> Maybe it's a 20, you, you, you gauge. Maybe it's a $25 question. Which views will lead to more intolerance? Because at the heart of the Christian gospel, this is what I want, to, want you to see tonight. You have a man who gave his life in sacrifice for the people that did not even believe in him. He died asking for God to forgive the very people that were killing him. Here's what one pastor author says about this. Christianity is an exclusive claim. We cannot get around that. But it is the most inclusive, exclusive claim because it wants you to exclusively believe in the man who died for his enemies and then asks you to love and care for yours. Guys, this is an offer. This is an invitation. Don't get stumbled by the exclusivity of it. Enter in and see what Jesus has to offer you. Three things that we're going to look at really briefly now. We're going to look at the way of Jesus leads to rest. The truth of Jesus gives life. And the life of Jesus brings freedom. I'll repeat those. So if you're writing notes and there's now smoke coming off the page because you couldn't write fast enough, I will repeat those. The way of Jesus leads to rest. Now, our verse, we have to unpack a little bit of the context. You guys know that in this chapter, this is just in the beginning of what's known as the upper room discourse. Jesus is with his closest followers, his closest friends, his 12 disciples. And he's sitting with them and he is declaring to them the final things that he wants to pass on before he goes to the cross. This is a beautiful scene. He's saying so many incredible things, but this is what he says, I am the way. Now, about two weeks ago, me and my family, um, we just got hit with this crazy cold kind of sinus thing. Anybody got this so far this year? Well, I'm, I'm going to sneeze. It. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, just over everybody. You're all infected. Um, so we were down for literally like seven days, seven days. This thing hit us hard. And um, we were really thankful because of Disney Plus and... Um, <laughs> You know, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's not very big. It's kind of this exclusive thing that me and my family stumbled on. And one of the things we're really liking is um, digging into some of the old Disney shorts. Yeah, right, yeah. Let's talk about it afterwards. Um, I'll tell you my favorite. Yeah, yeah, those, those are awesome. So me personally, I'm a Donald Duck guy. I've always been a Donald Duck guy. He's, he's my favorite. And... Um, you know, something occurred to me, though, watching these shorts and watching the Mickey, you know, Donald, Minnie, Goofy, Pluto. And, um, you know, Donald's, he's, he's, he's kind of bummed out a lot of the time. You know, classic Donald. I know they've tried to repackage him, you know, re reshape him for the new generation or whatever. But um, he, he, he is a little cantankerous. He seems to be uh, exhausted a lot of the time. He seems to always be waking up on the wrong side of the bed. He seems to be annoyed. And I was starting to watch these shorts and just thinking about what is it in Donald? You know, because I have these kind of existential moments when I watch uh, Disney cartoons. And I, I realized, you know, it could be because of his nephews. Yeah? yeah? <laughs> Seriously, you've thought, you've thought about it too? We'll compare essays afterwards. Why is Donald the way he is? <laughs> I need you to like that and share it, um, please, later. So he, uh, 
he's got these three nephews that are always just, just everything that he doesn't like they're doing, right? Causing him trouble, problems. I mean, anybody would be stressed out living with these three little turds, you know? They're just the worst. And then you've got Chip and Dale who are just like buddies, it seems, with Huey, Dewey, and Louie. And they're also causing problems, making Donald's life worse. And I just thought, you know what? Maybe he's just like getting dealt a, like a bad hand or something. Like maybe it's just who, who's around Donald. It's not really him. But then I stumbled upon it. We were watching the Mickey Mouse Club, the original, the OG black and white version, which my son just, he, he just immediately, when anything black and the white comes on the screen, he's like, ah, you know, it's like, it's like fire blazing towards his face. He's like, what is this thing? You know, he just hates it. And, uh, and so I force him to watch it for hours on end, you know, cause I'm a good father. And and I told, I told, well, let's just watch. And we watched the beginning of it. And if you've seen the beginning of the Mickey Mouse Club, you know that they're singing the song, M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. Mickey Mouse. And then who's there? Donald Duck. Guys, Donald is the way that he is because he's not Mickey. Just going to... I am going to let that land. Donald is the way that he is because he's not Mickey. He wishes he was Mickey Mouse. Because Mickey, he gets all the attention. It's called the mouse house, not the duck house. Right? I mean, Donald is always playing second fiddle to Mickey Mouse. Donald is always trying. He's working. He's wanting to be in the limelight, but he cannot do it. And what is the result? He's exhausted. He's stressed out. He's bummed. So I'm starting a petition. Go to my website. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. So I think this is an example, though, honestly, (laughs) of what many of us are doing in our lives. We are exhausted, we are tired, we are worn out because, listen, we are trying so hard to prove ourselves, to find ourselves, to be ourselves, which is what our culture is telling us, be yourself. We try so hard to live up to or achieve or perform in the ways that we believe will lead to happiness and contentment, but man, we are having the Donald Duck syndrome because we can't do it. And the more that we try, the more that we discover we fall short. Because I think one of the huge culprits in our exhaustion and our frustration and our restlessness is comparison. I think we struggle with comparison. Okay, I'm not going to throw you under the bus. I think I struggle with comparison. And yet we've got all these devices that give us more opportunity than ever to compare ourselves to other people. And the more that we compare, the more that we feel inadequate, the more that we feel inferior, and the more that we feel that we need to perform at a higher level, at a higher rate, I need to be more this, I need to have more of this, I need to do more of these things if I'm truly gonna be accepted. How many of you have a sibling or siblings? All right. 
you know something about comparison. Maybe your parents have told you, why can't you be more like... That's rough, right? It's kind of rough. You know, I think I struggled with this growing up the fourth of five kids in our home. My brothers, two, two brothers above me, they were, you know, best friends, buddies, and my parents would always talk about how Josh and John were just like so close and just like, man, they were, they were, they were solid dudes. And, and then there was Matt, you know, and Matt like tagged along and, you know, he, oh yeah, don't forget Matt. And then my sister was younger than me and she was kind of the princess and, you know, she got doted on and loved on, which was cool. And except when, like, there was me. And I think I often just kind of felt like, where's my place? <laughs> Who's my best friend? So I had an incredible stuffed animal collection, um, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and I'll just leave it there, actually. That'll be another camp. Um, but my, my comparison took on another role in my life because even though I had these insecurities at home, I would go to church and growing up in the church and you know, learning the Bible at a young age, I realized that I could be superior to other people in youth group because I could talk, um, spiritual talk. <laughs> yeah, I can't do it now, but I said spiritual stuff and, uh, you know, I learned the Bible and I was, you know, the first one to turn to the Bible verses and, and sword drills and all these kind of things. And I remember feeling like I was superior to other people. And I was battling this comparison thing. And I was feeling pretty good until my whole system broke apart. And it was sophomore year. And it came in the form of Nolan Shaw. I know. Nolan Shaw. He was this kid from Oakdale High School. He, which some of you don't know, but Oakdale is the cowboy capital of the world. So you don't need to know anything else besides that. He was the dorkiest kid. It was just like, oh man, who is this guy? But this guy got saved and he was on fire for Jesus. And he started reading the Bible and he started writing Bible studies. I remember talking to him and being like, so how did school go today? And he's like, oh, I was okay. You know, I got to talk to like three guys about Jesus at school during lunch. And I'm like, I'm like the homeschool kid, and I'm like, well, I, I talked to like two people today about Jesus too. My mom, my sister. Does my dog count, you know? But, but all of a sudden, I saw like, oh man, my system that I had built, I no longer felt like I was superior because there was someone who came along who was like growing and on fire, and I had plateaued in my walk because I judged everybody below me. Comparison led me to feel like I was just out of place. My foundation was crumbling. And here's what I want to say. Living by comparison produces a fragile and restless soul. It does. And I think so much of our exhaustion and so much of your anxiety and exhaustion that you feel, maybe as a high school student, I think one of the, the causes could be comparison. So what do we do with that? I don't know. Let's get the band up here and pray. No, I'm just kidding. I've got something, okay? I think there's two things that cause this, and, and, and this is going to help lead to 
what Jesus says to us in this passage. John Tyson, he's a pastor in New York City. In his book, The Burden is Light, he, he talks about two things that lead to comparison. One is a misplaced sense of identity. Basically, we're confused about where we derive our sense of worth and value. Is it from relationships? No, we get it from our parents. Some of us, we feel good because our parents affirm and, and you know, kind of build us up. Maybe it's our friends. Like, I feel like I know who I am. I've got friends. I'm doing good. Maybe it's a boyfriend. It's a girlfriend. It's a relationship. Maybe it's from accomplishments. Maybe you are the straight-A student. Maybe you are the star of the sports team. Maybe you feel like you have a sense of worth and value because of what you've done. John Tyson says this, our culture makes it hard to rightly order our identity so that we know at a foundational level who we truly are. This is really tough because those things may be true about you, but they're not the truest thing about you. The result is that we're trying on a lot of different identities. You ever do this? I don't know who I am today. I'm going to try to be this person. See how that goes. It doesn't go over well. You're like, forget that. I'm never doing that again. You try on this one. Maybe there's people that notice you for the first time. You're like, well, I'm getting what I want. So if this is the way to get there, then I'm going to keep going with this. And you're trying and you're trying, but in all you're trying, what is that doing? Man, it's exhausting. It's making you restless. It's tiring because you're not truly living out who you are. And the second thing he says, in addition to a misplaced identity, is a fear of missing out. Another cause of comparison is this constantly connected world. We're continually aware of the lives others are leading around us. And for some reason, they always look better than the life that we're leading, right? I mean, when was the last time you went through your feed and at least once didn't think, oh man, I wish I had that. I wish I was there. I wish I was hanging with them. When was the last time that you went through your feed and it was just all celebration? I'm so glad they're doing that. I'm so glad they're happy. Oh, it's so good to see them. Awesome, they're together? Rad, they broke up, it wasn't working out, but now they can serve the Lord, you know, or whatever it may be. No, what is it? It's usually like, oh, bummer. Oh, this stinks. Oh, man, I don't like this feeling. You see, these are our obstacles to finding true rest. Here's the offer from Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty-eight thirty. 30. Let me just read these words to you. I love the way the message translation puts this. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Burned out on religion? Jesus says this, come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Guys, the invitation of Jesus is not for people that have it all together, that have a perfect life, that have dialed in and just figured it out. It's for people that are tired, restless, exhausted, and are just looking for an answer. And Jesus says, you're the ones I want. So come after me, follow me. And in exchange, this is what I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna allow you to learn from me. The most gracious, loving, forgiving, caring, compassionate, well-balanced human being that has ever lived, Jesus. He wants you to follow after him. He wants to invite you in to be able to become like him. Have you noticed 
I'm not sure if you have, how the longer that people are married, the more that they just start to look alike. It's really weird and creepy. I think I've maybe even mentioned this before, but you look at a married couple that have been together for a long time and you know, if you didn't know they were married, you're like, brother and sister, right on. No, married, okay, right on. Why is that? Because the more you're around somebody, the more you just can't help but become like them, right? You start laughing like them. You start telling the same kind of jokes as them, which is one of my greatest joys in my marriage is my wife is actually picking up my sense of humor after 12 years. Oh, it's been a long uphill climb, lots of prayer, Lots of fasting. She finds movies that I thought were funny early on in our marriage. She finds them funny now. Or maybe she's just laughing with me, which actually I just realized. That's really hurtful. Okay. But here's the deal. The closer you are with somebody, nearness, A.W. Tozer, this brilliant Christian man in the, in the 20th century, he said, nearness is likeness. The closer you get to somebody the more you're just going to become like them. And this is rad because Jesus says, I am the way. Not like, here's a bunch of things to do. Jesus doesn't give you a list. He gives you himself. It's about following him. You see, the Christian life is about linking your life to his. And this is a life that is promising rest for a restless world. Is that good news? That's good news for me. I get exhausted. I get tired. Man, I cannot keep up. I battle competition, the feeling that I got to just work hard and I got to perform and all these things. Those idols still try to creep up into my heart. But then I read the invitation of Jesus and man, I just can't help but sense a peace and a rest in my soul. I haven't figured it all out, but man, I want to keep walking in that. Friends, the way of Jesus leads to rest. Second, the truth of Jesus gives life. When we follow Jesus, we discover our true identity. And this is so important because we are being told over and over again, find out who you are. You are what you have. You are what you do. You are your desires. You are what's been done to you. For some of you, that cloud is hanging over you. You can't think that you will ever be anything but what has been done to you, whether it's something shameful, something sinful, something horrible. And I'm just here to say that is not true because although those things may describe your life, they don't have to define your life because Jesus has given us a greater definition for our lives. You know, it's like um, last year, one of the most controversial, it was a huge year for controversy, right? It was really big. One of the most controversial things that happened in 2019 was when Pixar Studios decided to release another Pix uh, Toy Story film, right? You guys don't agree. Okay, well, for me, that was really controversial because number three, you notice that all my illustrations are like kids' movies? Now you know, I've got little kids. But number three was just like, it was a good bookend. It was just perfect. It was sweet. We had that moment with Andy, and it was awesome. And then they say they're going to release a number four, and you're like, come on, Seriously? And then I watch number four and I'm blessed. <laughs> and I have more sermon illustrations and I thank Pixar for that. So you've got this character, Forky. Forky doesn't, he doesn't, he's just like, there's a, an identity crisis. He doesn't know who he is. He thinks he's trash, right? 
Major spoilers right now. I'm, I'm moving on to Rise of Skywalker next. No, I'm just kidding. So with Forky, he thinks he's trash because he kind of is. He was made from the trash. He thinks he's trash. He's trying to go back to the trash all the time. And the toys are telling him like, no, like you're important. And he's like, not buying it. He's like, have you seen me? Like, I'm a fork, I'm a spork or whatever. He finally gets it, but it takes him a while. And that's part of the, the arc of the story, right? I, 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 I won't give it all away, but it's, it's really touching. I may have teared up. Um, but the idea is, what was it that broke through finally? He had to realize that his worth and his value came not in who he was, but whose he was. He was Bonnie's. And Bonnie wanted him. And Bonnie was looking for him. And she wouldn't be satisfied until she had Forky back. Now, here's the deal. You don't know who you are. You may think you're trash. You may feel like I need to go back to trash because that's where I came from. The shame that you're carrying, you're feeling, the guilt. You know what? Your true worth, your true value is not in who you are. It's actually in whose you are. Because in Christ, the Bible says you've been accepted, you've been adopted, and in that you are secure. That you can't, you can't mess that up. Isn't that incredible? We're all just little forkies running around, trying to find our way. We're lost in a, you know, an old, uh, what is that place? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> That's the reality. But, but here's the deal. It's not who we are, it's whose we are. And once we get that, man, there's something that takes flight. That truth of Jesus, who he declared us to be, that we actually are his friends, we are his followers, that we are invited in. Paul would later write about this, and he would say in Ephesians 1, that long ago before the world was made, God chose us to be his very own through what Christ would do for us. He decided then to make us holy in his eyes without a single fault, who to stand before him covered with his love. His unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into his own family by sending Jesus to die for us. You've been brought in. You've been adopted into the family. That acceptance that you're searching for, longing for, that you're working for can be realized in Christ. Not only that, but... Paul would go on to say later in another letter, I am secured. Look at Romans 8, 1 and 2. So there is now therefore no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. For the power of the life-giving spirit, this power is mine through Christ, has set me free from the vicious circle of sin and death. Paul goes later on to say in that chapter that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Like you can't cause God to stop loving you. And not only that, friends, not only are you accepted, you're adopted, you're secure, but you are significant to God because God actually has plans for you. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's masterpiece created anew in Christ so that we can do good things he planned long ago. Jesus' truth gives life because it tells us who we really are. More importantly, it tells us whose we are. Here's the last one. The life of Jesus brings freedom. So if the way of Jesus leads to rest and the life 
excuse me, the truth of Jesus gives life, then how does the life of Jesus bring freedom? Well, there was something that happened when I first got married that I didn't realize, and that was that um, I was really bad at song lyrics. My wife is the opposite. She can hear a song and she can pick up the lyrics. Are any of you like that? You're like really good at, at that? Yeah, I hate you. <laughs> I wish I had that ability. And in fact, my reading comprehension, I'm a slow reader and I love to read. It takes me forever to read a book, but I have to read really slowly and I still don't always get it. But I remember like early on singing a song, me and Bri would be riding in the car and she'd hear me sing a lyric and she'd just kind of look over like, huh? And it'd be like the total wrong lyric. And she'd be like, you know, what you're, you know what they're actually saying? And then she'd tell me the real lyric. And I'd be like, whoa, that totally changes the song. I thought they were singing about cereal or something. Now they're singing about love. Wow, this is incredible. I, I think that that happens to us. I think for some of you, the song that you are singing over your life, you've just got some wrong lyrics. I think that there have been things that maybe you have done. Maybe there are things that have been done to you or there have been things that have been done in your presence that have messed up the song lyrics of your life. You see, because one of the things that we need to be freed from is this sense of shame that we carry. Now, I know that Josh talked about shaming you if you leave your booklet around, and you can just rebuke Pastor Josh for that because we're going to talk about getting rid of No, I'm just kidding. But shame is one of those things. Here's, here's how you can tell shame. Guilt or conviction is an, is an important part of the process of our growth and sanctification because guilt, conviction is something the Holy Spirit does. And what it is is basically the sense of that I did something wrong, right? You, have you guys ever felt this before? If you haven't, we've got a lot more to talk about, but I did something wrong. But shame goes a step further because shame doesn't just say I did something wrong. Shame says I am wrong. Shame is, is feeling that there's something about you that's just messed up. Guilt is saying, I lusted, I fell, I did something I shouldn't. Shame is saying, I am a pervert, I'm a sicko, and if anybody knew really what I did or what I've done or what's been done to me, they wouldn't want to be around me. Shame is crippling your generation because no one's talking about it. And one of the most heartbreaking things for me to watch is our secular culture saying, do whatever is in your heart to do. And what they will do is they will give a free pass to anything, but what they won't do is give a solution to the feelings of guilt and shame once you've done whatever is in your heart to do. Enter Jesus, the Savior that we need. Because Jesus comes along 
And he has been dealing with guilt and shame ever since the beginning because this is not anything new. You remember in the garden story of Jesus, or Jesus, wow, okay, extra biblical. I mean, he was there, kind of. So here we go. Adam and Eve, what happens when they sin? What is their first thing that they do? They hide. They hide from God. Why? Shame. They, they, they feel guilty. They know they've broken a command, the command, the one command of Jesus. Of Jesus, again. Sorry. It's the, it's the extra spiritual version I'm reading. <laughs> Some good stuff in here. Um, they broke the command, but they didn't just run and hide. What did they have to do? Because that running and hiding, that's the guilt. I've broken something. I can't be around God. He's perfect. He's holy. What did they do next? They cover themselves. They chose the most itchy, scratchy material that I think was around, a fig leaf, which is just ironic, right? They cover themselves. Why? Because now they knew that they were naked and they felt shame. Because before sin had entered, guess what? There wasn't guilt. There wasn't shame. There was only innocence and honor. But once sin came in, then came guilt and shame. And that has been plaguing mankind since the fall. And that is why, friends, we needed a rescuer, a savior, because all of our attempts on our own, all of our attempts to better ourselves, all of the self-help material that we could digest, all of it, even if on the outside we would be bettering ourselves and feel more whole and feel like we've got it together, there's no answer solution for our guilt and our shame like Jesus offers. Because guilt, shame, it thrives on secrecy and solitude. Your shame will drive you to the dark places. And then that darkness will lead to more unhealthy behavior because you're going, I don't know what to do with this. So I got to medicate. I got to cover it. I got to do something to get my mind off of this. And then what happens? You feel more, more guilt for doing another thing, which leads to more shame. And friends, it's a cycle that continues. How do we break this cycle? I'm so glad that the gospel is good news, aren't you? It's not just good advice. It's not just a pick-me-up. The quieter you are about your struggles, the quieter you are about your sin, whether it's bondage, whether it's something that you know you have done or has been done to you because it's not just sins we commit, it's sins that have been committed towards us. The easier it is for shame to take root in your heart. What drives this out? To understand that there is someone who knows you better than anyone else, who knows you fully, and get this, fully loves you. Who knows you fully, yet fully loves you. That is a powerful love. More, that is a transformative love. That is a kind of love that shakes away the bondage of guilt and shame because we aren't hiding anymore. If he knows and he still loves me and he still accepts me and he still invites me to the table and he still allows me to be a part of his family and he calls me son, he calls me daughter, he calls me beloved. If he knows all of that junk about me, but he still loves me, then I'm okay. I'm better than okay. I'm free, and I'm free to live in this new life that he's promised, a life that, that doesn't promise perfection, but promises progress as we rest in him, as we find joy in him, 
as we give him the, the burdens that we're carrying and we lay them down at his feet, when we realize how deeply we are loved, there's something inside that happens. It starts an explosion that works outward. See, this is incredible. There's a story in the Old Testament that I'll close with. Because one of the promises of the Redeemer, of the Savior, was that he would come and that he would see and recognize those that were feeling lost in shame. Isaiah 54 reveals a huge benefit of what would happen when the Savior would come. The verse says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. You know that in that time, to not bear a child was just like the worst thing for a woman. It was shameful. Why is the barren woman singing? Well, listen to this. this the verse goes on. How does she get rid of her shame? How does she get rid of her feelings? It's not through confession only of repentance or, or just penance where she has to do this thing. She simply has to be linked to the right person. It says, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. For you will not forget the shame of your youth for your maker. Or excuse me, you will forget the shame of your youth for your maker is your husband. She had to be linked to the Savior. And the result of linking to the Savior was freedom from shame because there was someone new that defined her. There was someone new that gave her worth and value. And friends, that's what Jesus offers in his life. He offers a freedom to be known as you truly are. Not to stay that way. We're all growing. We're all in a progression towards becoming more like him. But man, the road is good. The way is good. It leads to rest. It leads to life. And it leads to freedom. Calvary Monterey's youth ministries meet on Tuesday nights at 6.30 p.m. at Calvary Monterey. Both middle school and high school students are welcome. Come on out. You belong here. And I promise, we don't bite.